Hey, this is Rob Harder with Making Your World Better, a nonprofit leadership show where real stories from real people who are coming up with real solutions to solve society's biggest challenges. What does it take to be an effective nonprofit leader today? How do people fundraise in an economy that is constantly in flux? How do you relate to board members in a way that inspires them to make a difference? What are the best practices that separate effective nonprofits from others? It is my hope that through these episodes, people can learn not only what it takes to be an effective nonprofit organization, but to hear real stories from real leaders who are successfully making a positive impact in their communities. We hope you enjoy this series as together we hear how they're making their world better. Welcome to the Nonprofit Leadership Podcast, Making Your World Better. Well, today's guest is going to share some fascinating insights into some very large and complex leadership challenges. David Revell is my guest today. David joined the Jewish Board in 2011 and became its CEO in 2013. The Jewish Board is a nonprofit organization that provides mental health and social services to some of New York's most at-risk residents. Over these last several years, David has been leading the Jewish Board in new directions as government funding has changed the way human services are paid. But David's biggest leadership challenge came about four years ago when the Jewish Board absorbed $75 million worth of programming, 9,000 clients, at 22 locations and a staff of around 800 from FEGS, which at the time was one of New York City's largest social service organizations following the collapse of FEGS. This move vaulted the Jewish board into becoming New York City's largest social service organization. So David today will share his leadership insights from his many years of experience leading large nonprofit organizations. Enjoy today's show. Well, David, it's great to have you on the show. Um, I'd like to start out by talking about fundraising and development. Every CEO and executive director of a nonprofit wrestles with fundraising. I mean, it's a never-ending challenge, as you know, with lots of highs and lots of lows. Uh, now, you've been with this organization for nine years, as I understand. First, give us a quick overview of the Jewish Board, and then share about the changes you have made in your tenure so far, particularly with your fundraising strategy and how you went about implementing those changes. Sure. So the name of the organization is actually the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. We are a nonprofit, mission-driven human services organization, and we work with essentially three populations of people. The first is people who struggle with mental health issues. The second is people who have been abused or neglected, so kids in the child welfare system or families that are survivors of domestic violence. And then the third broad category is people born with um, significant and severe intellectual or developmental disabilities. And it, with all three of these populations, we're working uh, with people of all ages. We have programs for kids as young as zero to five and their families all the way up through seniors. We work with people with end-of-life issues and everything in between. And with all three of these populations, we have both residential programs where people live with us in our facilities for a period of time or perhaps on a permanent basis in some cases, as well as community-based services that people can access right in their neighborhood in New York City. Um, so with that as a general background, about 85% of our funding comes through a variety of government contracts and reimbursements uh, from New York City, from New York State, and also the federal government, Medicaid and Medicare as well. 
and we fundraise uh, essentially the other 15% or so. Uh, we do have uh, an investment portfolio. We take some income from that, but we raise about today $16 million a year. When I first got here, that number was much lower. That number was about 11 or $12 million, but there was a very specific reason that it was lower. We are one of the member agencies of UJA Federation of New York, UJA standing for United Jewish Appeal. Um, like the other agencies in the UJA Federation network, we receive funding from UJA Federation every year uh, to the tune of about 6 or $7 million. So when I first got here, which was just a couple of years after the crash of 2008, uh, things were a little bit desperate financially, but it hadn't been that long ago that everything was fine. Government reimbursement was more or less sufficient to cover the cost of programs. The 6 to $7 million we got from UJA Federation every year was enough to make up the difference. So when I came in, it was a very sleepy sort of organization in terms of fundraising. They didn't, for example, do a gala every year, a fundraising gala every year, which a lot of my colleagues in the nonprofit world, I'm sure, are very jealous to hear about, but we did have to start doing that every year. And we had to figure out a way to really build the amount of fundraising that we were doing, <clears throat> excuse me, because government reimbursement was declining, and if we wanted to continue uh, our programs at the level of excellence that we really wanted to continue them at, we were going to have to raise more money. So we really focused on major gifts from individuals and foundations, and uh, over the intervening amount of time, we've managed to build up, build up both of those areas. Well, the size of your organization and the variety of your programs truly is impressive. And there's also no doubt that donors really want to know about and see the demonstrated results, the impact that emerged from their investment in a nonprofit. So I'm wondering, you know, you talk about government funding that you get a lot of, maybe more than some nonprofits that listen to the show, but you also are now really, you've ramped up your um, involvement and fundraisers or donors, I should say, that are coming from the private foundation. So providing clear and easy to understand data is critical for donors, I found in all my conversations with nonprofit leaders. How have you gone about doing that with a Jewish board, particularly the fact that you've got to communicate that to the government as well as to private donors? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, even an individual that might be making a gift because they have uh, an emotional connection to the organization or to the work that we do wants to know that their gift is going to make a difference. They want to make sure that what they're funding is effective. Um, and certainly for 90% of the foundations that we work with, making sure that you have measurable outcomes or being able to demonstrate the effectiveness and impact of your work is absolutely critical. So at the same time that we were thinking about how we were going to ramp up our fundraising strategy, we implemented a major effort uh, around data and outcomes. And in fact, it's built right into our strategic plan. We have uh, a couple of core principles. One of them is being more data-driven, and another one is being more outcome-focused. And what that meant for us was uh, just asking our program people some open-ended questions. What we said was, look, what are the outcomes 
that you are really managing to? What is it that you're trying to accomplish with the people that you're working with? Now, in some cases, those were easy questions for people to answer. But in other cases, it was not so easy because when you get a lot of government funding, you're basically being responsive to what the government funder wants you to do. And this organization sometimes had trouble taking a step back and saying, okay, I understand what my government contract or my government funder is demanding of me, but what do we really think is important? What are we really trying to do? So we went through a process where I asked each of the major divisions of the agency to come up with one or two important uh, data points that they really felt that they could manage to and that would be significant indicators uh, of their effectiveness. And we now have that across the organization. We also simultaneously had to build up our IT infrastructure in order to make sure that we could capture that data. So early on in my tenure here, we purchased a business intelligence system called Tableau. And for those listeners who aren't familiar with what a business intelligence system is, it can pull data from any other system that you might have, even systems that might be incompatible with each other, and create dashboards or centralized uh, sources of data that you can look at. So, for example, you can pull data from a spreadsheet and combine it with data from an electronic health record uh, and combine it with data from our uh, employment and payroll service. Uh, and so you can create an infinite variety of dashboards. Um, and we asked people to really think about what are some of the key indicators of your effectiveness and that's now what we managed to. I really like your approach on that, and you're kind of already touching on this, but let me maybe ask more specifically. You've also talked about, if you go to your website, about the outcome-focused care with a lot of the work that you do. And I think we all have a notion of what outcome-focused care looks like, but perhaps explain what that looks like specifically for you and how has that renewed your emphasis, if you will, on this approach, and how has that improved your funding in the long run? Sure. So let me take two specific examples. So one of the uh, largest areas of our work are children's residential services. So these are residential facilities for kids who either struggle with mental health issues, um, perhaps they have a very serious mental illness, they've perhaps tried to commit suicide, or maybe there are behavioral issues going on in school, and they need a respite from their family, from their community. They need to live with us for three, six, nine months while we help stabilize them, help work with their family to give the family the tools they need to really uh, welcome back this individual. Or maybe it's a kid who's involved in the child welfare system. Maybe a kid has been abused or neglected or doesn't have a family and needs to live with us for a while while we find them uh, an adoptive family or uh, a kin, a relative who'd be willing to, to take the child. So we have a number of children's residential facilities. And as I mentioned earlier, we have asked the program directors to tell us what are the key indicators. And what they said to us is the most important indicator for us in the children's residential area is where do kids go after they leave us? Are they going to 
a lower level of care, which is a good outcome, typically back to their family or uh, a relative or a foster family, but a lower level of care? Or have we not done our work with them and they've gone to a higher level of care, which is a poor outcome? Have they gone to a psychiatric hospital? Have they perhaps gotten arrested or um, gone to some other higher level of care? So it's a very simple indicator. Everyone understands how it works. And in fact, over time, uh, 75 to 80 percent of our kids successfully move to a lower level of care. Um, so that's our, our important indicator for the children's residential division. We also manage a number of mental health clinics. In fact, we're the largest operator of mental health clinics in the entire state of New York. We have 40 mental health clinics in neighborhoods all around New York City. Well, I understand that in 2015, the Jewish Board absorbed $75 million worth of programming, 9,000 clients at 22 locations, and a staff of around 800 from FAGS, which at the time was one of New York's largest social service organizations following the collapse of FAGS. Now, this move vaulted the Jewish Board into becoming New York City's largest social service organization. I also know that FAG's collapse shocked many people in the nonprofit sector. So what led you to take this challenge on? And as you look back on it now in particular, why do you think that FAG's failed in your opinion? Yeah, so this was actually a a pretty sad story. It has a happy ending, but FAG's was at the time the largest human services agency in New York City. They had a budget of about $260 million, uh, about 2,400 employees, a number of locations. And very quickly and um, without much preparation, they announced that they were having finan- financial difficulties and about a month later uh, decided they were going to declare bankruptcy. And people in New York City were shocked. Uh, FEGS always had the reputation of being a well-managed organization uh, that did excellent work, and for it to go out of business so quickly um, was was really a shock to the system. Obviously, the clients that they were working with, the staff at FEGS, but also all of the government regulators that funded and oversaw the organization um, were all sort of taken by surprise. And the first thing people thought of, of course, was there must have been some great crime committed. There must have been some fraud going on in the organization. And uh, despite three or four different government entities looking into the organization, um, there was never any fraud uh, detected. And I don't believe that there was any criminal activity uh, or any fraud there. Um, what happened is the state really started to scramble to try to find a home for all of these programs and all of these clients. And we were called uh, by the state and asked to take over uh, not the entire organization, but all of the mental health programs, so all of their mental health clinics, their day programs for people, adults who struggle with mental health issues that are known in New York as PROS programs, PROS being an acronym for personalized recovery-oriented services, uh, as well as some of their care coordination services for adults. And as you correctly point out, that was a very sizable chunk of the organization, about $75 million of programs. And 
we went through a process as an organization to decide if we wanted to take those programs on or not. Uh, you know, remember, this is an organization that just declared bankruptcy, so it's not like the Board of Trustees was excited about the opportunity of taking on all of these programs that clearly had some sort of financial problem with them. I don't know if you know this, but across the country, uh, about 10% of nonprofit organizations are actually insolvent. In other words, their liabilities exceed their assets. In the human services sector, that number is double. About 20% of human service organizations in New York State and around the country are literally insolvent, uh, meaning they're, uh, I have a friend who calls them zombie organizations. They uh, should actually close their doors. They continue just through a series of miracles, but eventually, as with FEGS, uh, there's going to come a time where they're going to run out of money, and uh, we are all advocating in New York for the state to increase reimbursement, to also create transition funds so when the inevitable happens and programs need to be moved to other organizations, that there are funds available in order to support that transition, uh, but those things are, are only slowly starting to happen, if at all. Hey, everybody. Rob here. Thanks so much for listening to the Nonprofit Leadership Show. If this is your first time listening to us, I wanted to make sure you are aware of a whole group of other interviews with fascinating guests that I've previously interviewed. Just go to our website, nonprofitleadershippodcast.org, and there you'll find numerous interviews of nonprofit leaders from all over the country, even from different countries, all trying to make their world better. I think you'll really enjoy those interviews. We want to give you more content, and we'd like to get that information to you. And all you have to do is give us your email. When you go to that website, you can put your email address in that first box you'll see on the front page, and you'll be added to our monthly email update. In addition to some great content, you'll see the latest uh, podcast shows that will be actually sent right to your inbox. And that way you'll never miss any of the great content on this show. The other thing I'll mention to you is if you have questions or comments or you'd like to be on the show, do not hesitate to email me. I'd love to hear from you. Just do that through our website, my email, rob at ccofpc.org. Well, thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. We are sponsored this week by Cinch Web Services, your best choice for WordPress support. We have a special offer for 50% off for those who listen to this show. Cinch is the best choice you can make for WordPress and WooCommerce support. They're experts at solving all sorts of website issues, from big problems like fixing a completely broken site to the tiniest of details that are stumping you. Cinch offers an ongoing support plan starting at $99 a month, which covers all mandatory website maintenance tasks, plus 30-minute fixes for free. Do you need website hosting too? Cinch offers high-quality managed WordPress hosting for just $25 a month. I personally use Cinch for my websites, and I can say that the support and expertise I've received from them is top-notch. They're just great to work with, and I no longer have to worry about the health or status of our websites because Cinch is there for us. Cinch knows that most nonprofits do not have an in-house support team. I mean, when problems arise, the last thing an executive director wants to do is be troubleshooting their website when it's not their wheelhouse and they don't have time to do it in the first place. So rather than relying on staff or untrained volunteers, let the WordPress experts at Cinch put your mind at ease and handle all your website troubles, maintenance, and tech needs. Cinch is also famous for their 30-minute fixes. Any problem they can fix in 30 minutes or less is covered for no additional charge. 
So stop wasting your time trying to manage your own site and check out how Cinch can be a remote support team for your organization. Now, here's the best part. As I mentioned earlier, you can get 50% off your first month of support at cinchws.com slash nonprofit leadership. Let me spell that out again. It's C-I-N-C-H-W-S dot com slash nonprofit leadership. And you can use the promo code leadership during checkout. We want to thank Cinch for sponsoring our show and for being a reliable support team we can trust. For those just tuning in, my guest today is David Revel, CEO of the Jewish Board, which he helped to build and grow what is now New York City's largest social service organization. He shares leadership insights from his many years of experience leading large nonprofit organizations. Well, it's a really interesting um, story. And thanks for giving us the background on that, because I think it is. It's a warning sign for all of us nonprofit leaders, um, because it is challenging, first of all, for all of us. And let alone what you just said, the stat, that's kind of a scary stat, actually, how many organizations are technically insolvent. Um, And then back to you and the Jewish board to be able to absorb that and to keep moving forward and not to have trouble yourself as an organization is pretty impressive. I mean, my guess would be there's a lot of leadership acumen that you and other people in your organization really applied and navigated through that difficult, but in the end, successful transition. So maybe you could talk about that. It's a leadership podcast. You've obviously done a lot of leadership in your life. Um, And when it comes to the Jewish board, and when it comes to implementing sustainable practices and efficient systems, what systems and practices have been most effective when it comes to nonprofit governance from your perspective? So some of it we've already talked about. We've talked about the IT infrastructure that a modern nonprofit, certainly a modern human services organization needs. We've talked about some of the fundraising practices that we've put in place um, but let me talk a little bit about some of our financial and budgeting practices because I think those are important. Um, we have a budgeting process here which takes six months and involves people at all levels of the organization. So it is not a top-down driven process. It's a bottom-up process. We ask program directors who are running programs to develop drafts of their own budget. Uh, We have budget staff who help them to do that. We have budgeting software that we implemented a number of years ago uh, to help people do that. They then uh, aggregate their budgets by division, programmatic division. They present them to their executive program director, and then they and their executive program director present their budgets to our chief financial officer and to me in a series of meetings about three months before our fiscal year begins. Uh, we then do a very robust budget presentation to our board of directors. We uh, create a 15 to 20 page budget narrative. We do a whole PowerPoint presentation with our board so that everybody within the organization from program directors all the way up through our board of directors knows exactly what's in our budget, where the risks are, where the opportunities are, where some of the key assumptions have been made. And then throughout the year, we have a monthly budget variance reporting process whereby every program gets their monthly uh, financial data every month, and they compare it to what they expected to have happen for that month, and they report any significant variances to our budget and finance department 
we in turn then um, present dashboards for our budget and finance committee of our board. So everyone's involved in developing the budget. Everyone's involved in tracking the budget throughout the year. So it's sort of the opposite of what happened at FEGS in that we have a lot of transparency. We have a broad-based group of people who are knowledgeable about the budget dynamics. And the, the budget process that we've put into place, I think, is a really important part of our sustainability. No, I'm really impressed. No, it's obvious that you've done a lot of good work and it continues to grow. And I like what you said earlier, too, that in the midst of that major transition, because you had good organization, you had good transparency, you were able to keep moving forward, donors continue to give to you. And therefore, at the end of the day, the people that need these services continue to have these services available. I mean, at the end of the day, I think that's the most important piece is you're able to keep serving people and no one fell through the cracks. So kudos to you and your team. Now, this is an interesting uh, topic I wanted to address a little bit just because I know it's popped up and it's, uh, there's been multiple conversations in New York City about this. And this is what I've learned. Again, I don't live in New York, but this is what I've learned that around, uh, well, I guess in January 1 of 2020, all workers in New York City must be paid a minimum of $15 an hour. Now, I know we've had a lot of debate in the political realm about that a bit, um, but what do you think about that as a nonprofit leader? Is it a good thing in general? Uh, and do you think, particularly when it comes to the nonprofit sector, will this help or hurt the nonprofit sector, in your opinion? Well, the answer is it depends. So, look, it's unambiguously a good thing. Uh, the work that our staff does is some of the most difficult, challenging, stressful, yet vitally important work that anyone can do. I say to my staff all the time, I dream of the day that all of you get paid millions of dollars and the people uh, on Wall Street make minimum wage. I would love for you know that to be the world we live in. So raising the minimum wage is certainly a wonderful thing. Uh, approximately, you may be shocked to hear this, but in New York, approximately 40% of all the workers in nonprofit organizations actually qualify for federal benefits like food stamps um, because of the low salaries that uh, we're all forced to pay. In our case at the Jewish Board, we had always paid a little more than the minimum wage, so the increase of the minimum wage did not add a financial burden to the organization, but it has had a couple of other impacts. Uh, it has made it much more difficult for us to hire staff at the entry level. So as I mentioned before, we had always paid 2 to $3 an hour more than minimum wage, but now we can't afford to do that, and everyone's making $15 an hour. So people trying to make the choice of whether to take an entry-level job with us, working with kids, uh, making minimum wage, or going to work at, you know, Starbucks or uh, The Gap, uh, it's kind of an easy decision for them because the work that we do is unambiguously difficult and challenging. And while there's no question that there are people who want to do that work and for the people who come to work with us, it's a calling, um, and people do tend to stay with us for long periods of time. We have people been with us 20, 25, 30, even 35 years, um, but it, it's become very difficult to hire people. In addition, even though it was state government that raised the minimum wage, the state and city contracts were not immediately adjusted to reimburse organizations for the higher rate that we were now forced to pay. 
So we were in a situation, uh, again, not as much for the Jewish board because we were already paying a higher amount, but for many of our colleague organizations where their labor costs had just gone up because of state regulations around minimum wage, but their reimbursement from contracts hadn't gone up at all. And, of course, for reimbursement that we get that comes from other sources, like Medicaid reimbursement for people visiting our mental health clinics, there's been no increase there for a number of years. While it's great, we all support it, um, the implementation has been rocky, and unless the reimbursement catches up to the reality of what our labor costs are, you're going to see more organizations teetering on the edge um, and more organizations that need to either transfer their programs to another organization or find a merger or acquisition partner. Uh, we've all become in New York and probably around the country, although I know less about what's happening nationally, we've all become experts at mergers and acquisitions. And I think it's an inevitable phase that we're all in that that's going to continue to happen. Well, thanks for your thoughts on that. And I know it's a sticky issue for some, but I really appreciate your perspective. And the other interesting thing you've mentioned before, but I think uh, that you've learned a lot from uh, at the Jewish Board is that you do get a lot of government funding, but you also, of course, get funding from the private sector. So in the perfect world, like what should the relationship be between the government sector, say, on the one hand, and the nonprofit sector? I mean, how are you seeking to strengthen the relationship that you have with both city and state government, as well as the private sector there at the Jewish Board? Well, one of the most challenging things about my position is actually the number of relationships that uh, need to be maintained and kept up. Uh, we have not just one government entity that we work with, but we have city, state, and federal regulators and payers. And even within that, we have many different government agencies that we work with. So, for example, at the state level, we work with the Office of Mental Health. We work with the Office of Children, Family, and Services. We work with the Office of uh, Alcohol and Substance Abuse Services. We work with the Department of Health, and that's mirrored at the city level, at the federal level as well. And as you point out, there are a number of private sector relationships that need to be maintained as well, uh, our board of directors, our volunteers, uh, all of our donors, uh, and so forth. So there's a, a, a web of relationships that all sit uh, at the, the nexus of the Jewish Board and its programs. And what's interesting is that these different entities sometimes have competing views. Um, you know, a private funder might want us to uh, innovate and start new programs, which, of course, we're, we're very interested in doing and we do all the time, while a government regulator might be interested in preserving an existing service at an existing level of funding uh, without uh, much growth or, or innovation. So uh, keeping, keeping this whole network of relationships going is really one of the central challenges of my job or really any nonprofit CEO leader, particularly in the human services space where, where we have uh, so much government contract work that, that we're doing. Well, as you know, my podcast is for nonprofit leaders, and I understand that you're transitioning out of your role, which probably is bittersweet. Um, well, in light of that, if you were giving advice to someone starting in the nonprofit sector, what would the most important advice that you would give 
to pass on to them based on your years of experience of leading nonprofits? Yeah, well, it's true. I uh, announced that I would be stepping down in uh, June of 2020. wanted to make sure I gave the organization plenty of time to do a search for my successor. Um, and actually, in case you're interested, what I'm going to be doing next is I'm going to be an interim or short-term CEO for organizations that need some short-term management help or going through crises. Some of the things we talked about today, like the situation with FEGS or some of the organizations that we know of that are teetering on the financial edge, they could use some professional management. The management uh, challenges are really no different and in some cases are more challenging than in the for-profit world. Um, I have board members who work in major corporations who once they come to understand the Jewish board and the complexity of the Jewish board um, say to me, you know, your job is actually harder than mine. Uh, you know, I'm not going to mention names, but people who work at major banks or major Wall Street firms or consulting firms, you know, they tend to, to do one thing quite well. Sometimes they do it on a very, very large scale. Maybe they do it nationally or internationally. But they all always come back and say, you know, the work of, of that you're doing in the nonprofit sector with fundraising and contracts and um, trying to keep a strong sense of strategic mission and purpose with all of these outside pressures is really uniquely challenging and uh, very complicated. Well, my guest again today is David Ravel, CEO of the Jewish Board, which he helped to build and grow what is now New York City's largest social service organization. He has shared his leadership insights from his many years of experience leading nonprofit organizations. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. Thanks again for sharing your insights with us. So for my listeners, how can people find out more about you and your organization? Well, of course, we have a website. People can go to jewishboard.org. We're also on all of the usual social media platforms. We actually try to use our social media platforms not as a way to promote our organization solely, but as a way to really start a conversation around some of the issues that we're working with. So people can go to our Facebook page. We uh, often post uh, articles that we think are thought-provoking about the work that we do or about what's going on in the world. Uh, so I'd encourage people to go to uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and look up the Jewish Board. All right, my listeners, so check it out. And once again, David, thanks for being on the show today. My pleasure. It was fun to talk to you. I wanted to let you know that we are on iTunes. If you are wondering how to find out where we are, check us out on iTunes by typing Nonprofit Leadership Podcast or Rob Harder, and this podcast should show up. We also encourage you, when you go on iTunes, let us know what you think. Give us a review. Give us a rating. We would love to hear what you think of this podcast, and your feedback will help us expand this podcast to get it out to as many people as we can. You can also go online to listen to this podcast, either nonprofitleadershippodcast.org or my website, robharder.com. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep making your world better.